triple play fantasies basketball show with Doc, Coach, and Brass Dadamas starts now. We welcome in a man like no other. Not only did he play basketball professionally, but he's been a survivor in the acting and broadcasting industries, a champion, not only in the NBA, but in life, as he is now a successful realtor. He played for 11 seasons with five teams, scoring 2,222 points for his career. He must really love that number for a reason. Any crazy hairstyle you can think of, he probably had it. The most interesting man in the world might be trademarked, but he's the most fascinating guy in sports. We welcome in Samurai Scott. Scott Pollard, what is going on? Wow, that was that's a hell of an introduction. Thanks. I think I had 2,222 2, hairstyles and facial hairstyles, too. <laughs> For sure. Lock it up. Yeah. That's true. Never a shortage on creativity and originality. Well, Scott, we really appreciate you coming on to discuss not only your career, but the interesting life that you lead. And I want to touch on the early days as you were born in Utah and you were one of six kids in a Latter-day Saint family. Mm -hmm. You followed your dad's footsteps as you played basketball at the high school collegiate and ultimately one-upping him by playing professionally. But starting your basketball career was at Torrey Pines High School in San Diego before you eventually played your senior year, and I know I'm going to butcher this, at Kamiakin? Did I say that right? Kamiakin. Ah, so close. High school in Washington to finish out your career. And your success didn't go unnoticed as you were a high school All-American in 1993. And I know Brad wants to touch on the recruiting process. I did. So the recruiting period for a highly touted high school prospect has always been something that fascinates me and because so many schools have to figure out a way to make their school most attractive without getting caught breaking any rules. Um, also, growing up Mormon, I imagine you didn't have the same hierarchy of values most 18-year-old boys have. So I have to ask, what kind of stuff were schools throwing at you and your family? Well, um, I, I think if I remember correctly, I was the 33rd ranked player, not by position, just overall player in the country coming out. So uh, I had my pick of schools, and uh, the youngest of six, as you guys mentioned, all five of my siblings, including my sister, had been recruited to play Division One, and all of them did play Division One, except for my sister, who chose not to go. She was recruited to play volleyball and basketball at BYU and just decided not to. Uh, but I got recruited to play volleyball as well. I was San Diego Player of the Year in volleyball, and a couple of the California schools wanted me to come play volleyball and, and tried to add that to Maybe that's what you'd want to come play at our school. You know, we'll let you play volleyball too. But uh, I knew there was no money in volleyball for me uh, at the time. I'm thinking, man, I got a 30-inch vertical. Uh, I'm 235, 240. If I could stay at this weight, maybe. But most likely, I'm going to be a lot better uh, chance of going to the University of Kansas, learn how to be a professional. Uh, but I can tell you there were a lot of promises out there. I didn't know this one until I was retired from the NBA in 2008. Being from San Diego, um, my sister was living in La Jolla at the time, which is another beach community down in, in San Diego area. And my, I was getting recruited to UCLA. I really wanted to go to UCLA. It's close to home. It was a good program. It is a good program. Um, but I guess 
again, unbeknownst to me until my, literally my sister didn't tell me until I was retired that one of the assistant coaches at UCLA said, Hey, here's a $2 million shopping budget for houses <laughs> and get you a job or I think it was like 150 or 200 grand a year. Now this is 1993 and wow. a $2 million. Let me just tell you, if you don't know much about the market out there, if you had a $2 million house in La Jolla in 1993, in 2020, that same house is probably worth 30 million. I, I power of inflation right there. But it, it's it's a big number, and my sister never even told me that because she didn't want me to pick a school based on something that was being given to her, uh, which technically is being given to me too. But at the same time, she didn't want to steer my decision. That could have set her up for life easily, and, and she could have just said, "Hey, go to go to go to UCLA." Um, I took a trip to uh, BYU because my mom wanted me to for the Mormon thing. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, my dad passed away right as my recruiting was really getting serious, so I didn't have him to lean on and his experience to lean on. Uh, but but as I said, all four of my five of my siblings had been recruited, so I, I had heard a lot of the promises before and knew to see through some of the bullshit that goes on. Um, and <clears throat> uh, I, I scheduled a trip to LSU. Uh, because at the time, the, the coach there, they called him the preacher man, uh, Dale Brown. Uh, he coached Shaq, and he was telling me on the phone, he's like, you're going to be the next Shaquille O'Neal. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, I, I was smart enough to know I was not going to be the next Shaquille O'Neal. But he was saying stuff like that. And also the word on the street was he was offering a lot of money for certain players. And I just wanted to go in person and hear what he would offer me. Uh, but unfortunately, um, it, it was never a realistic thing for me. I, I was never going to go to LSU. And after I went to the University of Arizona on my trip, I verbally committed there. Uh, as you said, Brad, uh, <laughs> I was raised Mormon, so I had some different values than some of the other guys being recruited. But the guys at Arizona took me to a party. And <laughs> I really liked the way most of those – party so i really <laughs> versus arizona um i i like long black hair and uh there's a lot of <laughs> hair with long black hair uh my wife has long black hair I, you, you might have seen her on the interwebs if you look at my uh, twitter page or her twitter page uh so that was a, a thing that became very real for me uh also a great program closer to home really wanted to go to the university of arizona i loved lute olson um and uh really thought that was going to be a good fit for me uh, but ultimately, then I went to the University of Kansas on the, my recruiting trip there. Didn't plan on being that far east. Didn't want to. Didn't even really consider anybody east of there. Although I was recruited by Duke, not North Carolina, because at the time uh, Dean Smith and Roy Williams had kind of a deal going. They didn't go after the same players. And so sounds like sounds like you're hustling backwards, man. You should have taken the money. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of different ways I could have taken the money, uh, but. I took a recruiting trip that that recruiting trip to BYU. They took me horseback riding. <laughs> oh man! I was like, "Oops, you missed the mark there." <laughs> a little different than how Arizona gets down, huh? It was the last time I went horseback riding. It was the first time I went horseback riding. It was the last time I went horseback riding. <laughs> just not my thing, you know. But I, I just don't. Uh, I don't go skydiving either. I don't trust other things with my life. So. That that's very true. And and Scott, I can't blame you for the brunette women uh, at Arizona. That would certainly <laughs> attract me as well if I was an athlete. But 
I think you made the right decision because going to Kansas, that was the beginning of your career and your road to stardom because you left your mark. Not only did you finish uh, with a degree in education, but you left your mark there on the basketball court, finishing fourth in rebounds and second in block shots. Kansas is a pretty prestigious program, so your name is going to be in the history books forever there. And I know Brad wanted to touch on kind of your emotions transitioning from college and eventually getting drafted. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, being at one of the Blue Bloods and and having a great career there, you know, what kind of emotions were you going through as you finished your career there? And did you know you were a highly touted NBA prospect? Did you feel any stress or pressure around making it to the league? Where was your head at at that time? Well, uh, <clears throat> I played with NBA prospects throughout my career. Uh, so there was always NBA scouts in the stands. And my senior year, there was one time when Roy pulled me aside. He said, I just want you to know these guys are here for you today. And, and so that was the first time my senior year that I knew there was NBA scouts in the stands that were actually there to look at me and not look at my teammates because I was playing with you – know, I can go down the list of all the players I played with that were in the NBA uh, and guys we played against in the Big 12 or it was the Big 8 most of my career and my senior year was the Big 12. But um, So that was cool and, and it, was a, it was a different feeling. Um, I was still planning on graduating and I was just a few credits shy of a master's. Actually, if I had done my student teaching uh, for the next semester, which obviously I was in the NBA at this point, but had I not gotten drafted, I would just had to do student teaching. I would have had a master's in education and become a high school history and social studies teacher. And that was just fine with me. I planned on being in Kansas uh, and, and enjoying that, that life. But uh, the, the damn NBA got in the way of my plans of becoming a, a high school teacher. And um, I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, it, it was it was a cool it was a cool experience. It was a fun experience, nerve wracking for sure, Brad. Uh, the, the emotions of am, am I going to be a first round pick? I was picked late first round, early second round uh, was what they were thinking going in. My agent was confident that I worked out for every team from 22 to 28. There was 28 teams in the league at that point, uh, except for Utah, and. <laughs> I met with the GM of Utah at a, at a camp in, in Phoenix for seniors and all-stars and stuff. And he was like, Jerry Sloan loves you. We love you. You're from here. And it's a perfect fit. And I said, I love Jerry Sloan. I would love to play for Jerry Sloan. I think you guys have a first-class organization, but you under, don't understand me. And they're like, what? This is great. I said, my personal life in Utah would be a mess. <laughs> I could fill that arena every home game with family and still piss off family. I'm in the entire state, guys. I'm sorry. There's no way that, that I'm going to go live in Utah and have to deal with that. I would have to hire someone just to manage the ticket requests every single home game. I said, I just I don't need that stress in my world. So that was the one team I didn't work out for. Um, and, and um, you know, I wasn't trying to be egotistical. I was just being realistic. That, that, that was just not a possibility. And so there was a weird emotion, you know, because it wasn't like I was trying to big time them and be like, oh, I'm not playing in Utah because I'm too good for that. Mm -hmm. I knew my personal life would be would be really difficult for me to focus on being a professional athlete. I just wouldn't have uh, the energy to do both very well. So the the emotions were crazy. And and as the draft was going on, I was in Vegas. uh, And because back then uh, the draft wasn't as big a deal as it is now. It wasn't even on national TV, so I had to go to a sports book in Vegas to watch it. And they started showing clips. We have no volume because there's a billion TVs in the sports book. And we're watching it. And all of a sudden, Jock Vaughn, my college roommate and uh, teammate, 
And he was projected to be picked in front of me, of course. And so we're wondering, I'm arguing why he hasn't been picked. And all of a sudden they start showing Kansas clips. I'm like, oh, cool. Finally, Jock got, got uh, picked. And all of a sudden my phone rings and it's the Detroit Pistons. And they're like, hey, Scott, we're really happy. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was expecting – so that's when I had to, I got kicked out of the sports book. They sent me out because you can't have a phone or you couldn't in 1674 when I was in the sports book. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they, they kicked me out and I was on the phone with them and I was on a plane the next day. So just a, a real true roller coaster of emotions from not knowing if I was going to be picked to getting picked in the first round versus the second round, getting picked earlier than I was projected. Uh, but um, I can go on for days, but a quick side story about that. I, like I said, I worked out 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, and 28. And every single one of those teams said they were going to take me. Well, Detroit had the first pick of the second round, and that's why they worked me out. They were planning on being available. But then all of a sudden, every single team I worked out for said they were going to take me if I was available. So Detroit got scared, yeah. and they pulled the trigger on me at 19 instead of at 30 or 29, whatever it was, uh, because I would have been gone. So it, it was a testament of my hard work and that's the only time I'll pat myself on my back about my NBA career because I probably would have been a second round pick if I had gone to those workouts and tripped them off. Scott, I love that not only did you play the other teams, but that story of getting drafted and then getting kicked out of the sports books is something that I feel like more people should hear. I don't want to touch on your stint with the Pistons for too long because I don't think they gave you a fair chance. We had Adrian Dantley on the pod previously and they traded him as well. So as a whole, we don't think highly of that organization. You were traded to the Hawks for Christian Leitner, but never suited up for them. But that might have been a blessing in disguise because the Kings were on the come up and would be a championship contender for years to come. The five years in Sacramento, you were beasts on the boards, swatting shots. But more importantly, you were one of the enforcers. And I know Coach wants to touch on your time a little bit in Sacktown. Yeah, so th this is maybe your best season as a professional. You were ninth in defensive rating this 2001-2002 season playing with the King Show. Seven players averaged double digits, uh, something I've really almost never seen before. Um, it was a beautiful, bruising basketball, some of the best that I've ever seen. Uh, what made that team and brotherhood so damn fun in, um, to play with and any funny stories that come with that fun group? Well, um, first of all, thanks. It, it, it was the greatest part of my career. Um, when Whenever Chris was out and I started, I actually averaged a double-double. So um, Love it. I think that was part of what made that team special was that there was missing pieces that would just fit together. When we'd lose somebody, we, got, we came together and we upped our status uh, and our statistical performance to make up for the loss of an all-star like Chris Weber or when Vladi was out. Uh, you know, there was times where Vlade shouldn't have been there. Uh, his family was going through the war in, in Serbia and his homeland. And there were times we could tell he walked in and he hadn't slept because he was on the phone just seeing if his family was alive. So uh, that, as one of the leaders of the team, I mean, that's just an example. The guy just showed up every day. And there was times we were like, dude, Vlade, take a day. Go to sleep. You know, and he would just fire up a cigarette and be like, I'm good. Flick it out. Let's go breakfast. Um, but it was just, it was a camaraderie in a, in a very, very weird way because professional organizations aren't typically like that. Um, none of my other teams I was ever on were that close. It was definitely a brotherhood that formed because of, I, I really can't name it. I mean, the organization was great. The Maloofs were new owners. They were willing to spend money and get out of the way. 
and let the basketball people do basketball things. Petrie was great. Him and Rick Adelman, our head coach, had a wonderful relationship from their days in Portland, playing together as teammates. Uh, and Rick really knew how to let the players play. He's a player's coach. He would set us up with some of Pete Perrill from Princeton's little backdoor cuts. And our version, uh, it was nothing like the triangle, but it was our version of, of an open offense that was a read and react offense, which really suited me because I can't remember plays for shit. <laughs> uh, I was very good at reading and reacting. That was how I played college basketball when Roy taught us how to play. Uh, it was about read and react. And so that that really fit my personality as well as a basketball player because we all just knew each other so well. We hung out together. We fed off of each other's emotion and knowledge of where that player is going to be. And if that player wasn't there, we knew what his backup was going to do. And so we all fit together so well as a weird puzzle of weird personalities. We had the Christian guy, Lawrence Funderburk, that never cussed, and busted himself one time when he got busted on the road. Uh, you know, went out to the papers and told everybody what he had done. And nobody <laughs> cared. <laughs> but um, we cared. I'm not. I'm just saying, like, the public didn't care. They, they don't care what, what you're doing in your personal time. But um, just an awesome dude. Him and I had some of our best discussions, and we couldn't really be much more polar opposite other than we both like to read a lot. Uh, and so there was the jokesters, the, the, the workhorses, the people that, that were the shining example of, of an athletic NBA player. And a quick side note, you know, Chris, Chris may get into the Hall of Fame, may not. That's not for me to judge. I won't say whether he belongs in there or not. But people ask me who the best player I ever played with in my life. And I played with LeBron. I played with Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce in college and the NBA. Uh, I played with. Grant Hill in Detroit. I played with, I mean, the, the list goes on. There's only 450 NBA players at any given time. So no matter who you're playing with, you're playing with one of the best players in the whole world at the time. And so, uh, you know, that list goes on. But I only played with one player that could do every single thing on a basketball court and make it look easy, and that was Chris. Chris could do anything he wanted to with the basketball or on defense, never break a sweat, never made it look hard. It was never difficult for him to pass. It was never difficult for him to rebound. It was never difficult for him to set screens. All the dirty work that you don't notice, but then also obviously all the stuff you do notice. And, and so uh, that I have to say he's the most talented, gifted player I ever played with, including all of those guys, just because of that. I think that and that's fascinating. That's very, very high praise, especially, you you know, you did play with LeBron when he really had his coming out party and um, took that team to took your team to the final. So uh, that's that's real high praise on on Chris. And I, I personally believe he belongs in the hall myself he made he did make it look very easy like you pointed out speaking of the finals coach um i gotta bring this up kings versus lakers western conference finals so a game that's pretty much been outed as a game that was tampered by referee involvement and gambling rings already i'm curious to know what you and the rest of your team was saying and feeling after all that was over and and that you got robbed game game six was the third game in a row that we felt was not great um Game four, there was a half-court shot that shouldn't have counted. Mm -hmm. If that shot doesn't count, Robert Horry's shot at the end of the game doesn't matter. It's insignificant. We've already won. We were leading from start to finish that game except for that shot. And the like, last 30 seconds or whatever was the first time that the Lakers had a lead, and then we ended up getting the lead, and then he hit that shot, if I remember correctly. So that sucked. That, felt, that was the first time we felt like, man, maybe we can't beat them. We knew we were better than them. We proved it during the regular season, best record in the NBA. 
and we had home court advantage, so we felt that was good. We went back home for game five, didn't have a great game, but still gutted it out. We were like, okay, we got to win, right? And we did. We go down for game six. It was pathetic. It, it was a pathetic game. Whatever you want to say with referees and fix and the gambling and all that, fine. You can say it. I don't care. We had game seven at home, and that's what you play for. You play for home court advantage. So we made it, for whatever reason, to the, to the one-game series, as they say. We're in game seven. And in the biggest game of any of our careers to that point, we laid an egg. We go double overtime or maybe it was single overtime, whatever it was. And I didn't get to play much in the fourth quarter or, or late. Uh, and, and it pissed me off personally. And that was one of the times I was ever selfish in my whole career. And I, I lost it because I was having a good game. I think I was damn near a double-double in that game. Yeah. Having a really good game. And then at the end of the game, I'm not in there. And I'm going, damn it, I brought you here. Let me take you home, you know? And so I felt pissed about that. Vlade even said it as he was coming in. He's like, I know, man. I told him, put you in, leave you in. But, you know, it, it, whatever happened, happened. But the bottom line is we shipped the bed. Seven. So I don't care what you say about game six. We had game seven at home. That's why you play for home court advantage. And, and we didn't get it done in, in, in game seven. We had guys that couldn't hit the shots. And, and it was not going to single out anybody. It was us. We shipped the bed. Yeah, and speaking as someone that's been an NBA fan, there is nothing more I wanted than to see that Kings team win. And your impersonation of Vladi is spot on. Um, but transitioning to the next team of your career, because after Sacramento, you were part of the Indiana Pacers team that not long before made it to the finals and was a contender. You would start 52 games over the three th- over the three seasons with the Pacers in a similar role as the big man that nobody would F with. But you were part of the Pacers team that was involved in Malice of the Palace. I doubt we ever see anything like that again in sporting history. As this was happening, what were your thoughts, and how was the team bus ride leaving Detroit that night? <laughs> well, that's not a short answer, but I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> first of all, I hope we never see anything like that in sports again. I think that was probably the worst thing that's ever happened in the NBA that's been on TV. Now, I know there's been fights before, uh, but when they weren't on TV, there was fights a lot. And a lot of the coaches I played for were players in the NBA, and they're like, we had fights all the time. Guys drank beer at halftime. Of course, they're going to get in fights. <laughs> So, um, you know, there, there's a long history of that, but hopefully that goes away with TV and exposure and all that. But uh, fast forward to what it felt like to be a part of it. I had been suspended a game earlier in my career as a king in Orlando when I was out of the game. And Tracy McGrady and Bobby Jackson got in a fight on the other end of the court. They were in the game. They were arguing, scuffle. Bench is clear. I step on the court to get a better view and then go, oh, yeah. And I step back. I got suspended the next night in Miami. Oh, my gosh. Go to the arena. Vlade got suspended, too. Now, he ran all the way down the baseline to grab Hito and drag him back to the bench because the game was over. It was out of hand. We were, we were on the bench because the game was over. We won. So Vlade and I are the only ones that get suspended. We go to this bar the next night. And he goes, what did your wife buy? I was like, my wife didn't buy anything. I don't know about you, but when I lose money, it doesn't mean she's going to go spend it. <laughs> so uh, it, it, the, the $5,000 fine, it, it was, was that sucked, right? But 182nd of your pay, that's a big number. 
Now, for me, it was $55,000. So I spent $60,000 on a Corona while I was watching our team play at a bar. <laughs> not even allowed to go to the arena. Vlade was a hell of a lot more than that. He was making way more than I was making. So that was in my mind during the brawl in Detroit. Am I going to go spend my paychecks to go get in a fight that I know I'm going to win? There's nobody out there that's going to beat me up seriously. I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. I've never been in a fight in my life. I don't want to hurt anybody. My oldest brothers, all four of them are bigger than me in either height or weight or both. Three of them are taller than me. So I know what it's like to be pummeled by a human that has just got no recourse. And I've never wanted to do that to anybody else. That's why I'm a lover, not a fighter. So I'm sitting there and I'm just thinking about my money that I earned. I'm not. I'm sitting there going, none of these guys are going to get hurt. They're, they're bigger and stronger than anybody that comes at them. There's no weapons on any of these, these civilians. So I'm sitting there going, sorry, guys, I love you, but I'm not spending my money because I've been through that. I, I spent $60,000 to step on a court once. I'm not spending $60,000 to get involved in this fight that I didn't start. And I was even in a suit because my back was out. So it was awful. It was ugly. And I, but I had learned my lesson. I work too hard for my money that I'm going to spend it to get in a fight that I know I'm going to win and somebody's going to sue me. I saw all the money that these guys lost and all the lawsuits that they lost because they punched the shit out of people. Uh, Jermaine O'Neal almost killed a man. And the only reason that man is alive is because Jermaine slipped on beer. It was right in front of me. Uh, Jermaine comes up, this dude, and you can see him run out of the stands. And I don't mean to laugh because it was not a good situation, but you could see the look on his face as soon as he got down to level ground he looked up at us and was like you could see it in his eyes holy shit they're bigger in person and all of a sudden jermaine just goes haymaker slips on beer and instead of hitting the guy here which is a kill shot he slips and hits him here and still knocks the guy directly on his ass that guy's through it but i'm not spending money for that I will say, like, you say you learned your lesson, but there's also a lesson to be learned from fans. Like, these athletes aren't your, you know, personal play toy, like, entertain me, entertain me. They can hear you. They can see you. They can feel you. You can't throw beer on somebody and not expect repercussions. Well, and, and the problem is, though, that, that Ron actually got the wrong guy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That was the wrong well, guy. pointless for everybody. Uh, but if you want to point a finger, and I love Rick Carlisle. I didn't like playing for him, but I love him as a person. I think he's a better coach now than he was then. But there was no reason Ron Artest should have been in that game. Another game was a blowout. Fair point. It was 97-82 at the point. Yeah. Yeah. There was no reason that our starter should have been in that game. It was simply to prove a point because he wanted to beat the crap out of him. Yeah. And I get it. Fair point. But on the other hand, if you want to point a finger of why that should never have happened, our starter should not have been in that game. And then the altercation between him and Ben doesn't happen. And then it doesn't escalate with him antagonizing everybody by laying on the scorer's table and then getting the beer thrown at him and hit the wrong guy. I mean, it was just, it, it was a comedy of errors and it, none of none of it should have happened. No matter what way you slice it, none of it should have happened. But if you want to stop it at the beginning, take your starters out of a blowout. Scott, I have a question because I read this in an article. I want to see if it's true or not. I heard Ron Artest came into the bus and said, do you think I'll get in trouble for what I did? It was actually after the coaches and players were fighting in our locker room with each other. Mm-hmm. And finally we got to calm down and everybody was sitting down in the locker room and it gets quiet. And that's when Ronnie piped up and goes, 
y'all think we're getting in trouble for this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Rob. Yeah. Rob, the whole season. Well, I, I want to sway away from that and touch on something a little bit more positive. But I do have to say, Scott, you are such the bigger man physically and literally. Um, just to finish out your playing career, you played a couple more seasons, one each with the Cavaliers and then the Celtics. Before retiring at the end of the 2000, 2000, or 2007, 2008 season. But Scott, this was far from the end of your career in the spotlight because during your final season, you hosted Planet Pollard, which was a segment of the show Celtics Now in the Boston area. So this experience along with others allowed you the opportunity to fill in for color commentator Tom Heisen in your third to last game. Did CSN New England approach you or did you approach them about filling in? And did it feel weird that one of your final games in the career was going to be in the booth? Um, yes, uh, it, it was It was them that reached out to me. I had actually, when I was injured as a Sacramento King, was the first time I actually did some color commentary with them. Uh, and I had done a few little shows out there in Sacramento, just man on the street type stuff. And then with uh, Pacers, they're not really as uh, – they're more conservative when it comes to stuff like that. They keep the players pretty wrapped up tight, uh, not a lot of publicity and, and public interactions other than just team events. Uh, nothing against them, just that's how they roll. Uh, Cleveland, kind of the same way. LeBron was the show. Whatever LeBron wanted to do, the LeBron did, and they support it, as they should. And then in Boston, they were a little bit more out there. They are like, hey, man, your career's over with us. I, I pulled my ankles uh, – I had surgery on both of them, so my career was over. Um, and they were like, the, the, the Planet Pollard thing had been going all season. And they're like, hey, man, Tommy's not feeling well. Do you want to step in? I said, sure. So it kind of worked out like that. They knew I had a history of being in front of the camera, and I'm not shy about putting my opinion out there or saying, you know, uh, what's on my mind. But those, those Planet Pollards were a lot of fun, man. I got to go see Boston in a whole new way and learn a whole lot about the city. It was really cool. I got to go see some historical monuments. I got to go to uh, make some gnocchi at a, at a local restaurant with the, with the chef. Uh, I went to Mike's Pastries, which is a landmark. If you ever get to Boston, go there. Uh, got to make some cannolis with them. And so I thought that was so much fun because it kind of tapped into my, my leanings of how I love history. And, and Boston is one of our oldest cities. And I learned a lot about the city itself by doing that. So I thought I got a whole lot more out of those Planet Pollard episodes than they got from me. Uh, but it was it was a, my favorite place to play in the NBA. My favorite place to live was Boston. Uh, I'm making sure I'm making sure I add that to my queue, Scott. Before we transition to your next part of your career, not just in the NBA, do you know what your career high was? In the NBA, I think it was 23. Okay, that's good. But do you know against who? I'll be really impressed. Uh, I think it was a blowout against the Warriors. They were our they were our whipping boys. You are you are good. You did score twenty three against the Warriors on April sixteenth, two thousand two. So yeah, the Toronto game because there was a Toronto like triple overtime game. I think I had twenty two or something. Bad. I beat them up too. I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about you know how the role that injuries have played in your career. The way modern medicine is right now, and the money that these guys spend taking care of their bodies today. Do you think you might have had a different? Uh, career trajectory today with the trainers the way the trainers are doing things today or do you think it would have been the same thing it's just kind of you know genetics how the cookie crumbles type things i don't i can't answer that i, I don't know i'd love to know i'd love to find out because the paychecks now are bigger than they ever were and now yeah. you know, i know how bill walton felt when i signed a six-year deal 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. You see Shaq talking down on any, you know, center that, yeah, it's. Exactly. So, uh, you know, I would love to see if medicine would, would have helped me have a longer career. Um, but one of my one of my worst injuries, I fractured my sacrum. Oh. And they don't know how. They were like, well, you take a lot of charges, you fall on it. But it was a stress fracture. And, they, you know, those come from overuse. So that's just me being a big guy that runs a lot, jumps a lot. But all the other NBA players do that, too. Now. Maybe because I was falling on it more, but the only professional athlete that I'd ever found that did that was a female marathon runner. And obviously, wow. I'm a female, so they just said it's it's weird. But that was that thing changed me as a player, and I was never the same after that. I think that's why Sacramento traded me to, to the Pacers. As soon as I came back from that injury, uh, the first game back, I broke my hand, uh, and then I sat out four games, I think. Uh, to your point about medicine, I just wore a little plastic thing over that. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't hurt me from playing. I shoot free throws right-handed, but I'm left-handed. So it really didn't affect the way I play. I just had this little brace. So when I shot free throws, I just shot with these fingers instead of all four of the digits. Um, and it didn't affect the way I played much. Would I have sat out more in today's NBA? Maybe they wouldn't have let me play because my hand was still broken when I came back. But uh, it, it would be interesting to know and interesting to find out because, yeah, I think 11 years, as long as that is, and I feel blessed to have played that long. I saw a lot of guys I played with that played a hell of a lot longer than that, Vince and Tim, Tim Duncan. I mean, those guys did 20 years. That's, if I could have gotten 15, I would have been really happy. But yeah. goal, I got 11. So I exceeded my own expectations as a kid and my goals. I'm a, believer that, I'm a believer that things happen for a reason. You had a great playing career. And a seamless transition to what it seemed into broadcasting. You joined NBA TV in 2009, and you'd ultimately be part of the Indiana Pacers radio crew in 2014. In between then, you played Axman in the horror film Axman at Cutters Creek and another role in the film Jayhawkers. But Scott, I want to talk a little bit about your time on Survivor. You finished in ninth place, which I'm sure is better than any of us could do. And both the NBA and Survivor are entertainment spectacles to some extent. I know there's something that Coach wanted to ask you about your experience on there. Yeah. Who um, who, who inspired you? Who is your favorite uh, Survivor member? Because I know it's kind of like a, like a family. Uh, you mean on my cast? No, in general. Like, who's your, your go-to? This Survivor was my favorite and helped inspire me. Uh, I don't want to pop your bubble, but they recruited me to be on the show. I had never watched. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There we go. Clearly, they contacted me in 2011 uh, the first time, and I couldn't do it. It was personal reasons. I just couldn't leave. Uh, but when they contacted me in 2014, uh, married to my current wife, my last wife, uh, and uh, she was like, go. Just wish I could go with you. And so I, I was on from, from when they contacted me. A couple days later, I was in L.A., and they told me which seasons to watch so I could familiarize myself with trying to figure out a strategy of how to play, uh, what the game is about. I'd never watched it, really. I'd heard of it, but I'd never really watched it. So I'm sorry. I don't I don't have an answer to that. But uh, they, they did a good job of, of teaching me how to play because I ended up getting eighth place, not ninth. Uh, yeah, okay. Would you ever consider doing a reality TV again if it was a competition thing? Because I know you like winning. I mean, you won 85% of your games at Kansas. 
uh, 115, and and you only missed the playoffs once, and that was for Detroit that rookie year. So I mean, you're you encompass winning on the court, but also in life. Was that would that be something that you would consider? I was actually contacted to go on the Amazing Race uh, two years ago. They were having survivors uh, and Big Brother contestants. It was one of those mishmash, whatever you wanted to call it. Uh, uh, and unfortunately, I, I, I kind of went diva on them. I made too many demands. <laughs> I, I just, uh, it's a long way. It's a long time of being away from your family. Uh, and, and knowing what I had known from, from Survivor and how they deal with things. I had some things planned that month uh, that I was going to be gone filming. And I could have missed them. But they were family things that I really wanted to be a part of. And I just said, hey, if I get voted out, can I go home? I promise I won't tell anybody. You know how I am. I had to wait almost a whole year before from filming, finishing to when our episode or our season aired for Survivor. So I said, you guys know how I do it. I'm not worried about me saying anything. They didn't call me back. (laughs) Ah, I love it. Going out on your terms. We're talking with Scott Pollard, 11-year NBA vet. Uh, businessman extraordinaire, never short of entertainment. Scott, we like to get our guests out of here on a little rapid fire, some 10 questions, this or that. Are you game? Let's do it. All right, I promise some of these are you probably haven't been asked before. So the first one, talking about your hairstyle, which one did you like better, the yellow mohawk or the ponytail? Ponytail. I miss my hair. As you can tell, there's not much left. (laughs) <laughs> thank, thank God there's pictures on Google out there. Next question. Would you rather win Survivor or the Indiana Association of Realtors Good Neighbor Award, which goes to a great realtor? Survivor. But here's why. <laughs> I'm hosting the ball this year, the, the Realtors Ball. I'm actually giving out that award this year. I'm the host. We, we, oh, wow. And, Can- I'm kind of part of that anyway, and that's the Good Neighbor Award. If it was Realtor of the Year, I'd rather win that. But the Good okay. Neighbor Award is great, but we do our best. In our, our quick side note, little advertising for, for West Bay Realty, every, a, a portion of every one of our transactions goes to the Mybor Foundation, which helps combat homelessness. So we, we definitely make it, to, make it a point of all of our uh, real estate transactions to give back to the community and, and help other people. So. Uh, maybe I'll get that award one day, but I'd rather win Survivor because you get a million dollars instantly. But I just don't know if I want to go <laughs> on Survivor and be away from my family for seven weeks. So. That, that That's very true. That's why these questions are tough. No easy answers. Next one, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I'm, my, my wife's half Italian, but it, it's ham and pineapple. That's one of my favorites. All right. Yeah, and that's good news to us. We're all pineapple on pizza fans as well. Would you rather step on a Lego or stub your toe on the corner of the bed? Uh, step on a Lego. Uh, typically when I stub my toes, I break them. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm too heavy. So, yeah, I'll, I'll step on a Lego. It's short. Yeah. Oh, oh, hopefully you don't have to do both at any point. Would you rather never get stuck in traffic again or never be cold? It would be cold. Okay. I like it. Would you rather be able to speak every language or speak to animals? Speak every language. Okay. All right. You would know then know what Vladi was saying in the locker room. Oh, I knew what they were saying. <laughs> I just can't repeat it in English. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right. I'm interested to hear your answer for this one. 
Would you rather eat brownies with a chance there's rocks in them or eat an entire jar of mayonnaise? Brownies with rocks. Okay. <laughs> would you just nibble and hope to, would you just yeah, nibble and hope to bet around? Strong and it, you know, if there if, if I break a tooth, I'll just get another one. But eating a whole <laughs> jar of mayonnaise, ugh, that seems Sounds- that seems like a, a fear factor challenge or something. It's like, uh, yeah, and then you're gonna throw up grease for a couple days. Yeah, that's that's certainly a true point. I didn't think about that. I'm interested to hear your answer for this one. Would you rather fight 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? 100 duck-sized horses or a horse-sized duck? I'm gonna go with the the duck-sized horses. Because they're going to be like running around. I'll just stomp on those little bastards. <laughs> a horse-sized duck, you know, those bills, I've been bit by a duck. You ever been bit by a duck? No. It doesn't really break the skin, but it hurts. they got tiny little, like, not teeth, but like needles almost. And they bite you. It, it hurts, man. A goose a goose or a duck biting you, it can hurt. So I don't want a duck, a horse-sized duck uh, ripping off. I'm pressing to say that, actually. Yeah. I like that answer. I, I would have you over the hundred duck-sized horses by a yeah. wide margin. Uh, just a couple left. Would you rather every shirt you own be kind of itchy or only be able to use one ply toilet paper? Oh, damn it. <laughs> well, I'm going to go with the one ply toilet paper because I have a bidet. Okay. <laughs> nice. All right. Last one. You were 0 for 2 for three-pointers in your career, so obviously not a large sample size. I read that you liked, um, you know, having the others take the opportunities to shoot, so very selfishness of you right there. I give you one shot uncontested right now. Are you making it? A three? Uh-huh. Absolutely. Okay. I love it. Don't misunderstand. Now, those two that I shot in the NBA were last second like heaves. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, swing it and shoot, you know. They were last second shots, but also I am the all time three point percentage leader in the history of the University of Kansas. Wow! Did not know that. One for one. I shot one my last game, my last home game, senior night. I shot and made the only three pointer I ever took. That's clutch. Uh, so yeah. yes, I would absolutely make it right now. Okay, I, I love I love to hear that, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure talking with you. Um, before we exit out of here, was there anything that you wanted to plug to our audience? I know that you're working in real estate right now, um, but anywhere where they can find you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, our, our website is westclayrealtours.com. Uh, actually, our website just got put up, so it, it's new. Uh, and I actually did my own podcast to kind of educate buyers and sellers on little trip, tips and tricks to get your home ready for sale or, or to pick out an agent. And so my partner and I did that. We interviewed some people that we work with regularly to kind of educate people. Uh, but we're, we've got a Twitter page. It's West Clay Realty. We've got Facebook, um, not sorry, Facebook, uh, Instagram. That's West Clay Realty as well. Uh, but our website is West Clay Realtors. And we're here in Carmel, Indiana. We service the entire Indianapolis metro area. Uh, we focus on the north side. We focus on our village because it's where we live. It's where we work. So uh, if you're in Indiana, give me a ring. I, my number's out there. Yeah, and if you want to follow Scott personally on social media, you can find him on Twitter at ScottPollard31 and on Instagram at ScottP31. Make sure to give him a follow. One T on both of those. Yep, that's right. Everybody, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for having me on, guys. It was fun.